we have to, of course, revere uh, John because the Spirit saw fit to put his letter into our Holy Scriptures, but I do think an editor would have been helpful. Um, I think that all could be condensed into about a paragraph. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of repetition in there, right? The repetition is reps, and it makes you stronger, so just hang with it. But you probably could gather that there's only so many themes in that letter, right? In fact, I think there's only so many words in that letter. They're just used over and over and over again. But that's some of the point, right? John is rehashing over and over and over and over and over again what he wants you to know. Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh is the Christ, he is God, not a representation of a part of God, not maybe a prophet of God. He is God. And whoever knows him knows God. And he has given us eternal life. So don't be deceived. Love one another just as he loved you. And you have confidence before him. Right? Or some summary like that. Right? You know, the, how a message is brought forth matters, right? And, and often the conclusion matters quite a bit, right? Like how I end a speech may dictate some of the like feeling that I want you to get. Are we going to elevate? Are we going to like come down? What are we doing here? And if you've read through some of the scriptures or any other letters, right, people have a tendency to end a letter in a certain predictable way, right? Like uh, coming to you soon or you know, like, I'm so glad that we've had this time. I love you sincerely, so-and-so, right? Paul usually has some sort of ending through some of his letters or Peter. I'm always struck that John just ends his letters like, little children, keep yourself from idols. Okay. Um, like, it, it comes across to me a bit abrupt. And I was talking with some people ahead of time. Right? We, we don't believe that the Spirit allows things to just be like inserted haphazardly. He puts it in on purpose. And so rather than this being some sort of like abrupt ending, I want to submit that truly this is a summarizing exhortation, a paternal plea, not only from John, but from God himself, little children, based on everything I just said. Don't fool around with idols. Don't fool around with falsehoods. This is an encouragement to not be led astray from the truth that I've just hammered over and over and over again. So we're going to work on the summary of 1 John by using this last little line, little children, Keep yourselves from idols. I'm going to work backwards a little bit of this. We're going to first talk about idols. What does it mean to keep ourselves from them, and how does that look? And then encapsulate it in this address that John loves so much of little children. So idols. There's a chance, I'm going to guess, that many of you do not have household idols. If you do, we should talk about them, right? If I say idol, there's 
in context of I'm looking out in the crowd, there's probably two things that might come to mind. There might be an immediate image of an idol, right? Like a gold statue of a deity of some sort that you light incense to and you pray to, right? We don't tend to see these very often. You maybe walk into, uh, you know, an oriental buffet and they have, um, they have a little Buddha and some incense and offerings. Uh, they are building a very large Hindu temple up in Kerry, and you'll be able to see an entire building adorned with literal idols. But we don't tend to come across them, even if they might populate our mind of what we imagine. Many of you who I know who have grown up in the faith, some have maybe think of idols in terms of, uh, you probably frame it in one way or another as like things that I put before God, right? Things I hold up as like something I really desire that take my worship and my, devo- and my devotion. We could name almost any number of things. And, and some of this comes, I mean, not just from our understanding of our human nature, where we do obviously have a tendency to really exalt things in our lives, don't we? Specifically in our tradition, the, the John Calvin's quote from his institutes is used often here. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. He actually goes on a little bit here. He says, mankind's mind is so full of pride and boldness and dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity and indeed is overwhelmed by the crassest ignorance that it conceives of unreality and empty appearances as God himself. That's a bit harsher. People don't tend to quote that part. They just say, man's a factory of idols. It's more digestible. And it's true. Mankind was made in the image of God, male and female. He created them. God is in of himself creative. And we bear his image. We were meant to be creative. We were meant to devote ourselves We were meant to see one another and love one another and exalt one another and work for the good of one another and give ourselves for one another. That was in the garden before the fall. But in the fall, our minds tend to be wrapped. And so it's no surprise that our creative, God-given image of God in us has been warped to create not things that are for the good of one another and for the glory of God, but rather to take away the glory of God and to consume away our good. Our creative impulses are devoted to things that actually end up consuming us and our illusions rather than our true and good and beautiful. And I think we could talk about this in such a way where we, we kind of know that. And so I want to get a little specific which I hope is a little more specific, and actually challenge this quote a bit. Not so much the notion, but the way that we tend to use it. In my time in the church thus far, I hear people talk about idolatry quite a bit. And we even may use that quote. Well, well, you know, heart's a factory of idols. I'm like idolizing this and that and this. 
I have a problem with the way that we use that so often. So let me, let me, let me give two, two things about that that I want to pastorally move us to be a bit more specific. Okay, the first is this. That, that's rather flippant. If you read through God's word, we don't just say, oh, I mean, yeah, I know. Human hearts, factory of idols. The land's just populated with idols. I guess we just got to hope God changes the heart. It's like, no, tear down the ashram. Tear them down now. The people of God went into exile. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. They were slaughtered and destroyed because they did not take down idols. Idols are a very serious thing to God. The only solution to if you identify an idol is to destroy it. Not to say, like, resign yourself to its existence. (laughs) And so if we really want to be scriptural, if we really want to follow the true God, if we really want to not be deceived... If we really want to know and trust and see and touch and smell and embody the fellowship of the one true God, we cannot tolerate idolatry. And so I want us to maybe back off using that quote too much. And let's be a little more specific then. Because if everything's kind of an idol, well, then nothing's kind of an idol, and I can get by with just sort of swimming in the water of idolatry. Rather, let's be, let's be more specific. Everything is not an idol. Okay? Gold and the jewelry that Israel brought to make the golden calf is not an idol. The golden calf is an idol. It actually was an idol to Yahweh. <laughs> They called it their true God, but they set up this thing. They made this thing to follow and worship and adore. Many times, here's the second thing, many times we talk about things as idols like happiness or success or fertility or parenthood or peace. Those are not idols. Those are blessings. (laughs) They are good things. You can overwant good things sometimes. That doesn't make them an idol. You should want peace. You should want justice. You should want righteousness. You should want happiness. We have a whole book talking about how people want these things and how God promises to give them. The issue is not that those things are idols. The issue is that you're looking to things to give them that do not give them. So the question is not, we have this tendency to say, it's like, okay, what are you putting before God? And you might put your happiness. I, let, let me reorient this a little bit. Who, to whom, or to what are you looking to give you these blessings? Who is making promises to you that if you just give me your follow, your money, your time, your attention, your devotion. I will give you these things. 
there are specific voices and people and places and things that we give ourselves to that we hope will give us something in return. That's an idol. So let me give you an example here. I think like I've heard like work is an idol. Work is not an idol. You're commanded to work. Okay? An employer might be an idol. But we all have employers in one way or another. The employer might be the one, the employer who's setting up a scenario like the temple, <laughs> okay? In which idolatry is certainly going to be prone to occur. Rather, let's just use the term. Who is your idol at work? Who do you want to be like? What position do you want to have? What is the thing that you imagine that you give your hours and your time that you sacrifice yourself and even the well-being of your family, even the well-being of your convictions to try to get. Because if I have this, if I give myself, if I'm like this person, or I achieve this level, then I'll have what I need. If I give myself to following this person, then I'll make sure that I have success. That's an idol. Or maybe fame. People say, like, fame is an idol. Fame's not an idol. Fame's an abstraction. <laughs> Instagram might be the setting of idolatry where you go in to seek fame. So if places like social media are the temples and the marketplaces in which we go to pay our devotion to the idols, who are the idols? Well, who do you follow? Who do you want to be like? Whose pictures do you go to scroll through? Man, if I was like them, I would have all that great stuff that they have. Or maybe you go to set yourself up as an idol. Oh, look how, look how many followers I've got. I mean, we use this language, don't we? We like, oh man, I, I just idolize that person, right? Or they're, they're such an icon. I mean, we glorify people. We follow people. We devote ourselves to people. We even fetishize. That's idolatry. Don't hide behind wanting fame as the idol. Who are the idols that you're looking to who provoke that desire in you? I know for me, right, there are people that I could follow online, and I just want to be like them. And if I thought that I was like them, then people would pay attention to me that way. Whether that's like how I am as a pastor, or how I look physically, or how I am like with my friends and how I'm interacted with, right? Those all might be good desires. The issue isn't the desires as much as it is the issue is that I'm following people who are crafting my desires and making me spend all of my time and money and energy and exhausting me and taking away from my family and my well-being because I'm spending all my time looking at them.
So as God ministers to us, idols, ask yourself before God in prayer, to whom and to what am I devoting my time and money and attention? Who do I want to be like? Who is promising me things? Political leaders or their establishments? People you idolize and want to be like? Employers? People you're fans of? You might come up with a bunch of justifications for it, but let's be honest together before God. This is important work to do with one another because we have a tendency to justify ourselves, don't we? Don't do it by yourself. If you're the idol worshiper, don't rely on yourself to say, I should get rid of the idol. <laughs> you're gonna come up with a reason why I should keep ball in my kitchen, right? Okay. You want to do this with someone else to help point that out. So have conversations about like, yeah, wh who do I follow on Instagram? Or whose blogs do I read all the time? Or who am I dressing to be like? Who am I casting my vote for? Things that they're just going to like establish Christendom in this world. And then as you do that, deal honestly with taking yourself out of the situations that cause you to worship them and go to them and seek their promises. So this is the second point, right? Keep yourselves from them. We are setting up things and people to promise us things that only God can give. This whole letter is about Christ only is the image of God. Christ only is the true God. God is the only one from whom all blessings flow. So keep yourselves from idols, from deceit. What, what does keep mean, right? Like, we keep promises or secrets. Right? Parents might say something like, I want to keep you safe. To, to keep. In Greek, it's, it's actually where we get that phalanx, if anyone knows that, where they're all like lined up with the spears. Right? Like, it's to keep a line, to observe, to hold. It's an imperative command. It's not a well wish. He's saying, keep yourselves away from idols. You need to be active, proactive, constantly being attentive to all the little voices that might snare you and lead you astray and say, hey, hey, come in here. I've got something for you. Hey, come in here. Like, just devote your time to me. I'll give you the attention or the satisfaction or the anger, whatever you want, right? I'll build it up for you. And so it's this paternal plea, keep yourselves from these deceits. And there's an aspect of keeping ourselves. I, mean, I was talking with some people about this earlier this week, right? It can be like avoid, right? Avoid the idols. You should, right? I mean, you should avoid making idols of things, right? Israel was supposed to avoid throwing their gold in the furnace and making a golden calf. They should have avoided that, okay? But you also live in a world that is full of idols. Paul walks through Athens and he's like, this city is full of idols. 
Men of Athens, I see you're very religious. I could walk through Twitter and be like, men of the United States, I see you're very religious. Right? You can't just like not be around things that are being idolized. So to whom are you going to turn? We talked about, it's not just about avoidance, but it's about abiding. Did you hear how often abide was used in this letter? It means remain. It means sit still here. Some of you may have been to Europe, you've seen castles. I watched some movies and read books now with Aveline, right? And there's like princess castles and they look really like beautiful and wonderful. There's some that look like that. Usually they're like kind of these big gargantuan military, you know, establishments, right? Like they're not, they're not pretty, okay? And if you go to, because they have these, there's like series of fortifications, right? There's moats and walls and towers and other walls and barricades and gates. And what is in the middle of a castle? A keep. Why in English do we call it a keep? Well, one, it's the thing that the whole castle is trying to keep safe but it's also the place where you might be kept safe. That you might be kept. In verse 18, just a couple verses before 21 that we're talking about, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The way to be kept from idols is to keep yourself in Christ, to keep, to dwell, to abide in Jesus. And he will keep you from idolatry. If you go into the keep, someone's got to go out and protect you. Jesus Christ is the one, as we heard when Steve read the words of assurance, who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus lays down his life as a propitiation for your sins, who shed his own blood to protect us and keep us safe in himself, in Jesus. He is our keep and our abide. So what does that look like? Otherwise, it's just a bunch of theological niceties. How does one keep, abide in Christ? Someone pointed out there's a mystery to command. We must first and foremost see that it is Jesus keeping us in himself. The only reason we can do that and come to the keep and knock for sanctuary and abide there is because Jesus Christ flings the doors open for us. And he makes a way for us. He wants us to be there. He wants us to stay with him, the only true God. He revealed himself. He's not out there like mysteriously to be found. But we participate by going to him. If we were to walk through the marketplace like Paul, we could stop at any number of booths and shrines. I mean, how many, I've had this experience. How many of you maybe gone to pray and you feel a little bored, so you flip open your phone first? Oh, and there's all manners of idols on your phones. Funny enough, then we don't get to pray, do we? 
Or let me just check this email first. Or let me just do this first. Yeah, a whole clamor, a pantheon of pagan nothingness that makes us like, well, why don't you just do this first before going to God? Gotcha. Okay. What do we do to prioritize being before the face of Jesus Christ? Coming together as brothers and sisters, whether just in fellowship or in word, whether it's picking up the scriptures to just dwell at them, to go in prayer, you might be like, oh, I don't know what to pray. Then be silent. Let him pray for you. Sit quietly. Are you tempted not to do otherwise? Then seek a friend in the fellowship of the faithful. (laughs) Moses needed two people to hold his hands up. I need lots of people to hold my hands up. You need people to hold your hands up. You're tired and angry and distracted and tempted. You're going to need someone else to come alongside you. Like, why don't we sit Why don't we sit here for a while with Jesus? I know all of these other things look attractive, but we should should sit here right now. We avoid and keep from idols by being kept in Christ, the means of grace, being in his word, being silent, and still before him, being with the fellowship of believers and letting one another help cloud, push out all the other noise. That takes practice. Those who practice righteousness are righteous. It's okay to be weird, figure, I don't know, Trial and error, figure it out. Like what? <laughs> Be honest with one another. But we're within that honesty and with one another, we can practice what it looks like to go to Jesus and stay there. And again, all that is rooted, right? This hard-hitting command, keep yourself from idols. You're going to be deceived. What is the context in which he is doing this? In conclusion here, right? What is the context, his address, Little children. As some of y'all pointed out, it's a really important way to frame this, isn't it? The idols are out to get you. God is not out to get you. He's not waiting for you to stumble into idolatry. He is waiting for you to be in his arms as a father to his child, as a prodigal father who is looking on the horizon for his child. That's how God is. Inviting us into his presence, into his protection, into his oneness, into himself as a father to his child. Little children, hold my hand. It is dangerous in the parking lot. Hold my hand. I want to walk with you. Sit in my lap. I want to hear from you. Come and give me a hug. 
He keeps us in his embrace. I want to be there. I want you to be there. I've listened to you. I know your hearts. You long to be held. You're tired from a bunch of false promises in this world. Bring it all to Jesus. Let's go with him together. Let's leave all these things that glitter and gleam but don't give us anything. And let's sit with the one necessary thing, the good portion, the only true God, his son, Jesus Christ. And let's do that together. So Lord, I ask your blessing upon us. Sow your word into us, please, and hold us fast. Keep us in yourself. May we see you through one another and wait for you and dwell in you and abide in you until we see you face to face. Keep us from idols, Lord, I pray, through Jesus Christ the only true icon of God. Amen. Ooh, sweating. Let's continue our worship in song.